Next on Lectures in History, Loyola University Chicago professor Michelle Nickerson teaches a class on the deindustrialization of the U.S. in the 1970s and 80s and how music and popular culture of the period reflected these economic changes. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, glad you could all be here. How are you doing? Good. All right. We're getting towards the end here. Um, so today we are going to talk about uh, basically a, a set of events that follow from uh, last week's discussion about the radicalism of the 1960s, uh, the earlier week uh, discussion about Nixon and Watergate, um, and also, if you remember, the early years of the American conservative movement. So uh, this brings us to the 1970s, and the topic is deindustrialization. So we're picking up our lecture in 1970, but we're going to take this all the way through really the 1980s. So uh, the developments that I talk about weren't sudden. They un sudden they unfolded very slowly, uh, and I will explain why. To do that, I want you uh, to reflect on a question that I'm going to give you. Don't raise your hands yet uh, because I want you to think about it. The American dream. How do you define that? Then I want you to think about your grandparents' generation, your parents' generation, and your generation. I want you to think about the standard of living enjoyed by these generations in your family. Okay, can somebody give me a definition of the American dream? Carla. Um, being successful and being successful and like getting married maybe, uh -huh. having kids and like being able to to provide for your family? Yes, that's the American dream for a lot of people. How else what, How else do we, do people think about the American dream? Alexia. I think for like an immigrant family, I, my parents were both immigrants, and for us, it's, they value education, me getting educated and finding a good job so I can right. take care of myself. Right, okay. So the American dream um, is about uh, being prosperous, successful, education. Um, the other thing that we, we might not think about is how the American dream is imagined to unfold over generations. So uh, my grandparents being immigrants, they came to the United States because they wanted to create opportunities for their children. Along with this is the assumption that the American dream relies on equality in the United States, that everyone in this country who lives here has access to the American dream. So now, reflecting on your grandparents and your parents, how would you respond to that question? Um, with a show of hands, how many people's parents lived, in your judgment, a better lives than your grandparents' generation? Okay, that's interesting. Um, now, how many of you think 
that you are going to live a standard of living better than your parents? Okay. Really begs the question, right? Like, what is standard of living? Yeah, no, I get it. But, um, okay, reflecting on that, um, we're going to move on to talk about what happened to the U.S. economy. It's sort of a development in U.S. political economy after the 1960s. It's a, a period that we refer to as deindustrialization. And what that means is that jobs started moving. American capital started moving from the places where it had been established um, over the course of the 20th century. So to help us understand that, can somebody tell me what was it about the United States between, let's say, 1940 and 1970 uh, that made people prosper? Why did people become prosperous? What, what happened? What fueled this American dream that helped your parents' generation to live better than your grandparents' generation? that are enabling people to go to college and get educated and try to get to that area of being able to be prosperous and successful. Right. The GI Bill that uh, created educational opportunities for the American military. What else happened? Yes. Uh, can you wait a second? Okay. <laughs> go ahead. Um, the New Deal following World War II and all those things that happened to kind of rebuild the American dream and uh, the economy helped people be a lot more hopeful about what was going to happen. Okay. So the New Deal, the New Deal also created the welfare state. So we had Social Security. Gianni. At this point, after World War II, America now has the economic ability to be able mm -hmm. to support people. I mean, because most of Europe is destroyed at this right. point. Um, and, you know, the American military industrial complex is growing, and they're growing a lot of resources based on how, what they're selling to the world now. So America is now the hegemon in the world after this Right. Point. And if you remember, <clears throat> it was in these years that the United States became the creditor to the world, right? So our financial system was so robust that we're lending a great deal of money to these uh, nations in Europe that are recovering from the destruction of the war. We're also becoming uh, a manufacturing powerhouse. Uh, this was when we saw the development of U.S. aerospace, of uh, the automobile industry. We became um, very prosperous because of uh, heavy industry, essentially. So this is what's going to change once we get to 1970, because American manufacturers decide that in order to maximize profits, they need to leave the places where they had built their plants, places like Detroit, like Pittsburgh, uh, Gary, Indiana, exactly. Uh, this place, I have told you about this place before, Camden, New Jersey. This is where I was born. This is the Camden of the 1950s. Uh, this is when my father was growing up there. It was doing very well. It was an interesting working-class city where if you lived in Camden, you weren't rich. You typically lived in two flats and three flats, uh, and you worked in the shipyard or you worked at RCA or if you were my grandmother, you were waitressing to the people who worked in those places. Then this is Camden by 1980. 
uh, when I was growing up in the suburbs outside of the city. We would take trains to get into Philadelphia, and we would have to cross over Camden. Nobody would get off the train in Camden if you were from an outer suburb. You would just go over Camden, and this is what you would see out the window. It looked like Dresden after the war, and it continues to look that way today. It's because companies that were so important to the economy in the 1950s, in this case, Campbell Soup, RCA Records, they took their plants out of Camden and moved to the American South and Southwest, uh, an area of the country. So the, the decline that we see is in uh, a, a place that we call the Rust Belt, this section of the United States, which uh, tends, oops, sorry, which tends to be in the Northeast into the Midwest, uh, where Chicago is in the Rust Belt, but it has not suffered like other cities. Does anybody know why? What is it about Chicago that's helped keep this city alive? Chicago has a very diverse economy. So even though manufacturing was very important, and there is still some manufacturing here, uh, but you know some of those industries that we talked about from the beginning of the 20th century, the stockyards, these centers close of manufacturing, but Chicago has always had many other things going on here. So the jobs leave the Rust Belt, and the first place that they go in the 1970s is to the Sun Belt. So the Sun Belt is a region of the United States. It's really a, a political economic idea. The idea that metropolitan centers like Dallas, uh, Houston, Charlotte, North Carolina, Phoenix, they become the places where manufacturing finds their home. So why? Why would businesses leave the Rust Belt, as it became known, and go to the Sun Belt? Because of economic incentives there that were created. Last week, excuse me, it was, I believe, Tuesday, we talked about Senator Barry Goldwater of uh, Phoenix. Barry Goldwater, I pointed out, was one of the fathers of U.S. conservatism from the 1950s and 1960s. Well, uh, Barry Goldwater became so successful in Phoenix, not just because of his, his family's department store business, which he inherited from his father, but because he and other city leaders in Phoenix changed the laws to make Phoenix business friendly. So Phoenix, uh, in the 1950s, went from being a, a backwater southwestern town to being an economic engine for the nation and into the, the sprawling metropolitan center that you know today for a few reasons. The first was tax incentives. For you to open a business in the Northeast, even in Chicago, you're going to pay a lot of taxes. People in this city will tell you that they pay out the nose. So in Phoenix, the city fathers established a system so that they could lure manufacturers to their part of the country by saying, if you come here, we won't charge you taxes for the first five years of your existence, or 
we're going to bring down those taxes to make it affordable for you to operate your business. Uh, so to give you an example, um, in my neighborhood in North Park, Chicago, there was a big box, well, really what it was is a storage space uh, that is it's, it's going to open shortly. But when the business owner came and proposed it for zoning, uh, a lot of people didn't want, you know, public storage in the middle of our neighborhood. It's not going to look pretty, but there are others who thought, well, what's going to happen when what was formerly a parking lot is now a business? We're going to collect taxes from that business, and it will help our schools. CPS is always struggling. That's the reason for taxes. In the Sun Belt, politicians were saying, well, we can't do that. If we want to have jobs here, we have to make it easier. So the other thing they did is they eased regulations. So they made it easier to, for businesses to deal with zoning laws and all the other things that they have to do uh, in order to operate their businesses. So they, they pulled back on government regulation. And the last thing they did is they made it hard for unions to organize. They passed uh, what are referred to as uh, not right-to-work laws, but um, they're laws that basically make it hard for the government to intervene in uh, labor disputes. So these are laws that favor employers. And uh, for that reason, businesses like RCA left Camden and moved to the Sun Belt. And to this day, the economy in that part of the United States is growing in ways that it's not uh, in this part of the country. So um, just to give you an example, I want you to kind of imagine what we've talked about up to this point, how we saw uh, in employment, especially manufacturing employment, we saw this, you know, so where does this spike come from? The war. The war, right. Then we had a little bit of a recession, but then the economy grew uh, right up to the middle of the 1970s, and then, then you see the decline, okay? Uh, this is also interesting in terms of the racial disparities. So uh, we see a, an incline in, uh, the, of wealth enjoyed by different groups of Americans. So uh, there's an increase until the 1970s, uh, and African-American wages and uh, wealth does not ever really catch up with white Americans. And then when they start recording uh, the wealth of Hispanics, you can see the decline there, too. So uh, just I'm going to throw some statistics at you. In 1947, we produced most of the world's steel. If you remember when we talked about the Industrial Revolution, how important the development of steel was to the U.S. economy. By 1975, we're only producing 16% of the world's steel. So we are going from becoming the most important exporter of goods, especially industrial goods, to becoming, over time, one of the most important importers of goods. So uh, the other reason we see a decline in this period is uh, because the labor movement loses a lot of its power. 
I am going to read you some quotes here from people who lived through this. So the American labor movement, if you remember, generated a great deal of energy, especially during the war and during the Great Depression. That was after its initial rise at the beginning of the 20th century. Well, after the 1960s, unions start to go into steep decline in the United States. Uh, it's largely because there are many people who don't like unions, uh, partly because of internal inertia. I pointed out that people who worked in manufacturing because of the AFL-CIO went from being members of the working class to being members of the middle class in the 1950s. So if you worked for GM and you raised your family in Michigan, chances are you had good health care, you had a pension, and you're going to be able to send your kids to college. Well, because of that, union members did not want to rock the boat, and neither did their leaders. So they weren't doing a lot of organizing. They were just trying to maintain the status quo. They weren't going out and having one-on-ones and trying to bring new people in. Uh, so they, they went into decline. Another reason is uh, some, some unions were plagued with corruption. Uh, some unions had ties to the mob. Uh, so these gave all unions a bad reputation. Uh, another reason is that uh, the government and politicians began doing what they could to make it harder for unions to organize. Uh, for example, they might not, a, a government in a particular state would not enforce uh, the laws of the National Labor Relations Act. So employers could do all kinds of things to make it hard. So if you walked into work and you had a union button on, the law says that you can't fire someone for wearing a union button. But if the law is not being enforced, then it's going to be really hard to organize a union in a place like Walmart, for example. So unfriendly laws, inertia, um, and a, a political climate that's unfriendly to unions and uh, kind of the rise of the Sunbelt uh, types of policies that made it harder for businesses to, to meet the demands of unions. That's one reason. Um, and so there's a problem with the wages, the benefits, the pensions that happen after 1970. I'll uh, give you an example here. 25% of American workers are organized in 1976. Ten uh, less in eight years, it's down to 15%, and it's only dropped off from there. Uh, recently, we're seeing something of an uptick in organizing in places like universities, for example. Um, I don't know how many of you heard the WBEZ report on uh, organizing here at Loyola and other universities yesterday. So there are sectors of the economy where you do see labor asserting itself, but for the most part, it doesn't have the national impact that it had politically or economically in the 1960s and earlier. Um, so uh, I'll give you an example of, of what happens. So this is the McDonnell Douglas plant in Torrance, California. McDonnell Douglas is one of those classic businesses 
that grew up out of the war. So aerospace took off in Los Angeles, really, with World War II. McDonnell Douglas was one of those companies. It employ, employed tens of thousands of employees who lived pretty good lifestyles in the 1950s, 1960s, even into the 1970s. It is the kind of employer that filled homes like this. If you remember when we talked about suburbanization um, and home loans at the time period, this is Lakewood, California. And it was one of many subdivisions, uh, Levittown, that sprung up in response to the economic boom that we talked about. And also the, the passage of the National Highway Act in the early 1950s. Uh, oh, we'll get there into it in a minute. But uh, I just wanted to talk about then what happens. There is no more McDonnell Douglas anymore. Over the course of the past couple decades, their, pan their plants, plants closed and they eventually merged with Boeing, which of course is the most important manufacturer of airplanes. Uh, so McDonnell Douglas, which once had built, you know, the transport vehicles for the United States and other allied nations in World War II, disappears. So they close first, let's say, a plant in Torrance. They also had plants in Tulsa and other places. And people just lost their jobs. Uh, and, and this became very difficult for uh, people who were doing heavy industry jobs like welding and riveting, um, people who were machinists. And they, they suffered terribly because of that. Uh, in 1973, a spokesperson for the AFL-CIO actually came before the U.S. Finance Committee to talk about what was happening to our economy. And I'll quote him here. He said, we have become a nation of hamburger stands a country of industrial capacity and meaningful work stripped of these things. We are a service economy, a nation busily buying and selling root beer floats. So this is what happens. We go from being an industrial economy to a service economy. So uh, what does that mean? What's the problem, right? One. One economy replaces another. What's wrong with flipping hamburgers at McDonald's or uh, making lattes at Starbucks? Why don't, why don't people aspire to that? I'm going to call on you. Yes? Um, maybe because like, before the U.S. was a um, country that had a big industry and like making advancements especially in the world and like universally mm -hmm. and then if you're just a service economy it's just kind of like mundane like actions and you're not really making like any advancements or like that's interesting i guess there's some there's some work in the service industry that might be less fulfilling uh, uh but there were also if you remember that uh charlie chaplin film that we watched uh work in the industrial sector could be unfulfilling too and sometimes monotonous but there's something different even when the jobs were monotonous. Sarah? The wages, the wages are not the same. Uh, what else? Sweta? Um, 
I think it's just kind of like the connotation or the image that it working or like working making lattes or flipping hamburgers has is like a negative con- you know what I mean like a negative sure okay so you're serving people yeah and so before you were behind the scenes making products and like they you make more money off of that like there's more by making like those like products in a factory they're it's kind of an advancement to mm-hmm. like it's a bigger you're working for a bigger company versus when you flip hamburgers or make lattes, it's kind of like looked at as like a small. Yeah, the question yeah. is why? Like, why is that not the same? Maybe it's Morgan. more of a like a global industry. Like when you're producing, you can like you're serving like the whole like you know like a more of expansive population of people. Whereas service is just like United States. Like that's kind of it, and you're not really involved anywhere else. Huh? Maybe. Okay, one more, Victoria. Um, in an industrial economy, it's much more easier to upkeep a middle class, as you said, with those benefits. Um, yes. Why? Why can you be in the middle class if you work in uh, GM and you're just kind of putting bolts on an assembly line? The wage is better and also Wages? you get a pension and Pensions. social security benefits. Okay. Everybody gets social security, but it's really the benefits that uh, if you are working in the service economy, chances are you're not making much of retirement, that your employer is not putting much money away to help you save for when you can't work anymore. Second is health care. In the United States, most people's health care now is tied to their employment. If you have what is usually a part-time job in uh, the service industry, you're not going to have the same health care benefits that your parents' and your grandparents' generation had. So it's one of the reasons why we fight so much about health care policy in the United States uh, when you hear you know, Congress trying to figure out what they're going to do with Obamacare. It's, it's why these are, have become such hot-button issues. This is when it became a problem, when we started to deindustrialize. So the other thing then that we see as we move into the 1980s is that those jobs that moved from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt, they leave the country altogether. So it becomes much more profitable for manufacturers to make goods in places like Mexico, China, uh, any place where they don't have to pay the same kind of wages that they do in the United States. Uh, who has an iPhone here? Do you know where it's made? China. Why don't they make it here? It's, you would be paying 10 times as much for that phone, probably, if they had to pay U.S. wages. Uh, if they had to provide benefits, if they had to provide pensions and maintain the standard of living uh, for people who work in heavy industry in the United States. So jobs moved offshore. That's what we call it, offshoring of, of the industrial economy. So then we get hit even harder. Uh, over the course of the 80s and 90s, we see uh, manufacturing on the U.S. border in uh, business is called uh, maquilladoras. So right in Juarez and, and other places close to Texas, uh, you have workers who are making goods that are just going to go right across the border into the United States. 
Now, on the one hand, this is helpful because then people can afford these manufactured goods. There's a reason why most people in, you know, at Loyola and other places actually own iPhones uh, and use, uh, that's why it's universal. It's a technology that people can adopt because it's cheap. Uh, the problem is that it's not helping people earn livable wages in that area. So uh, when we get into the next class, we're going to talk about what actually happens to the U.S. economy in the 1980s, because even as we're deindustrializing, we experience a huge economic boom in the early to mid-1980s. The, the nation's economy expands. Uh, there's, there's more money circulating. There's more investment. Uh, so if real wages are not keeping up, then where is that money? So if it's not being enjoyed by uh, someone who's cleaning rooms at the Hyatt, uh, then, okay, where is all that wealth? Want to take a guess? Anybody? Yes? The wage increase is going, like, to the wealthy, the 1% everything. Okay, yes, it's going up. So, yes, Patrick? Well, I was wondering if you could also talk about the introduction of... Um, like automation that that happened also in the 70s and, and 80s into industrialization that further like moved jobs um, out. I mean, in addition to offshoring, there was like just this rapid uh, implementation of electronic and, and com computerized production. Right. That okay. So next week we're going to talk about the the rise of tech as an industry. But uh, Patrick's absolutely right in the sense that automation. Um, is taking tasks away from human workers and making it cheaper for uh, companies to, to make things. And then so a machine, a robot, uh, begins to replace humans, and so therefore people lose jobs. This is a problem that continues right from decade to decade, starting in the 1970s. Um, the wealth is moving up. So we begin to see, uh, well, what eventually Occupy Wall Street and other movements have begun calling attention to the 1%, where um, the people who are living in poverty and people who live in the middle class, they almost live in a different country than people who are extremely rich. Um, this is partly because... Uh, we leave what we call a stakeholder form of capitalism to a more profit-driven capitalism where in the 1950s uh, it was important for CEOs to earn a good income, but the workers were paid well. They, they took the lives of consumers and their community seriously. Well, companies can't do that anymore today. Uh, they really have to maximize profits as much as they possibly can to compete with each other, which is why we have blockbuster, blockbuster CEOs like Bill Gates, like uh, um, Bezos at Amazon, um, where they make so much money that you know people who don't live in that world really can't comprehend it anymore. That's what we mean by profit versus stakeholder capitalism. But... Uh, 
It's also because of policies uh, that were developed in the 1980s. So, for example, tax cuts meant to stimulate the economy, um, and it did generate a lot of wealth. It creates, though, what uh, author Michael Lynn refers to as the overclass in the United States. Um, and, I, you know, by this time, you're, you're pretty familiar with what that looks like by the, the turn of the 20th century. So, um, then the question is, how do people respond as things get more difficult? Well, there's frustration and rage felt by a lot of people who lose their jobs, who, you know, lose their industry, lose their homes in this time period. Um, there's also a great deal of self-blame. So, I mean, when you think about, let's return to the American dream, the idea is that the United States is a place that respects equality, equal opportunity, that everyone here has a chance. Remember, this goes back to um, the idea of the industrial era, when people could you know, pick themselves up by their bootstraps. I mean, this was the story of Andrew Carnegie, who went from having nothing, being an immigrant, to being one of the richest men in the world. Well, in the United States, we continue to perpetuate that idea over generations. And as you all just said, in many ways, it represented the lived experience of people in the 1950s and 1960s. Well, the problem is that compared to other nations and what, how they respond, People in the United States tend to blame themselves. It's like, well, why can't I make all this money? It must be something that's wrong with me. I'm doing something wrong. Um, and, and people suffer. Uh, so, for example, after the McDonnell Douglas plant closed and people went out of work, um, there's a very famous journalist, Susan Faludi, who goes and talks to uh, the people who lost their jobs. And one of them, his name is Don Mata, he says, there's no way you can feel like a man. He's talking about what it feels like to be unemployed. You can't. It's that fact that I'm not capable of supporting my family. When you've been very successful in buying a house, a car, and could pay for your daughter to go to college, you have a sense of success, and people see it. It kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about what it, it feels like to have that kind of job versus flipping burgers. I haven't been able to support my daughter. I haven't been able to support my wife. I'll be very frank like you, with you. I feel I've been castrated. So for a lot of workers, many of them who were men from kind of white ethnic backgrounds, uh, they felt a loss of their manhood over the 1970s and 80s because they were raised to believe that this is what it meant to be a man, to have this kind of industrial job. So they, they were kind of lost at that point in time. So uh, the American dream then made people feel like they were a failure when they couldn't keep up with the changes in the economy. Um, and it didn't help that in the United States we have a culture of aspiration. So when you watch shows on TV or YouTube or you go to the movies, 
many of the things that we watch here in the United States are about very rich people. Uh, think about reality TV. You know, who's keeping up with the Kardashians these days? Uh, I don't necessarily mean that yeah, that you have to, but uh, this is kind of the the culture that we inherit. That uh, in the 1980s, I just put this film up here. This was very popular uh, when I was in high school, and it's about uh, this guy on the left, Bud. Does anybody recognize the actor Charlie Sheen? Yeah, there you go. Uh, and this is Michael Douglas, and he plays a character who, by now, uh, you know, especially my generation, everybody remembers his name, Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko was the CEO of, I forget what kind of company in New York, but uh, I, I actually, I think it was, a, it was a financial business. And he was doing insider trading. So he was breaking the law, right? And Bud was... Uh, a young man who just got out of college from a working-class family. His father, played by Charlie Sheen, uh, was uh, a worker, right? He comes from that generation. Well, Bud is very excited to have this salary that pays for a great apartment. He gets a, a new, really beautiful girlfriend, and he becomes friends with Gordon Gecko. And uh, so they develop this mentoring-protege relationship. But then he figures out what happens? And so Bud is in this dilemma, you know, do I report my boss? Because if he goes down, I go down. Uh, it also involved his father, I forget how, but in the end, uh, spoiler alert, Bud does make the right call. So the thing is, even though the movie had the right message, it had a good message, most people who watched Wall Street were there, they were there in the movie theater to kind of consume the lifestyle of these, these young investors who were moving around Wall Street at the time to watch the crazy parties that they had, um, the, the fashion of the women, and the, the lifestyle. Yes, Johnny. There's something that's talked about in economics every now and then is like the luxury class. Uh -huh. um, in the sense that the working class, lower, lower class people may not have things but they seek to emulate or be just like the, the luxury class, and they'll buy things just to feel that way in kind of a, a shroud to overlook their own um, pitfalls, you could say. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're just, their, goal, their, strive is to, their goal is to strive to be the luxury class, and that's kind of something that even economists talk about and how that kind of makes our markets move in certain ways and why we'll spend more for good just to look like someone else. Yeah. You know, it's not as if these things don't happen in other places, for sure, but doesn't happen like it does here. Um, there are, yeah, there are companies. Uh, what's Gwyneth Paltrow's company? Uh, what's it called? Goop, right. So she's asked about this all the time because the things that she sells on Goop are very expensive. But she will tell you flat out she knows it. She's not, she doesn't think it's for everybody to buy, but she describes her products as, and she uses this word, aspirational, right? So there's a, an economy for goods that make people feel like they're wealthier. Um, and this, in turn, makes it hard for people who are working and who really, you know, they just really want a job and want to raise their family. But if they fail at any of this, they, they take it upon themselves. They think it's their fault. Um, so 
rage, frustration, depression. Um, these have all been byproducts of the of deindustrialization. Um, also, you know, we had the problems of uh, of methamphetamine abuse uh, that happened in different parts of the country where the economy is hollowing out. Um, the other response has been in American popular culture, which uh, you've, well, we already see it here with Wall Street and other movies, uh, but also in music, which is what we're going to talk about for the rest of class today. So um, how many of you like hip-hop music? Okay. Where do you hear it? Where do you, where do you get your music, Gianni? Um, so a lot of it's coming directly from the artists in terms of like social media, I'll follow them, but uh -huh. stay up on the radio, YouTube is a big source, um, but it kind of blasts in, every, in all directions in 2019, at least. Yeah, so especially social media, it's very accessible. Um, where else do you hear hip-hop? You hear it in films, you hear it in clubs. Well, hip-hop gets its start in the 1970s in parks and on beaches, mainly in New York. So there were DJs who became artists themselves basically by setting up turntables right in the middle of a park. You know, you would plug into a field house and you would just, you know, on the spot kind of organize a party. Or maybe you would circulate flyers beforehand and people would come to hear you spin music. Um, I'm going to play you a, just a clip from, this is uh, Grandmaster Flowers, who some people credit him as being the father, if not one of the fathers of hip-hop and rap. Listen to the words. As we take it from the top and let your ears drive it. Until the hip, hip, pop, bitty, pop, bitty, 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 dip, 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 stop. Cause it's on. I like a Sunday morning, it's on. I like an early dawn, it's on. I like a Sunday morning, it's a rock, no stop. And everybody going just yep, pop, we don't stop. It's Aaron to Barry, it's on your mind. Cause I'm a one of a kind and I blow your mind. I got the hip hop, I don't stop. Put your foot on my rag. I'm gonna put on the rock, your back, pop, but it don't stop. New York City is showing goes, don't you know? We're number one to make it stereo. We do the hip bit bump it, bump it, bit it, bit it, bit it, bump it, stop. You put your foot on the right. You're listening to New York's number one, having a lot of money. I did it, 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 bump it, bump it, bit it, bit it, bit it, bump it, stop. You put your foot. Okay. So, what did you hear? that sounded familiar, what was different than the hip-hop that you listen to today. Did you hear the origins of the word hip-hop? Go ahead, Patrick. Oh, um, yeah, I did hear that, too. Okay. But I also, that was, it was an art form created by sampling earlier genres of music. Yes. And the technology of the turntable allowed you to make loops of maybe only four seconds of a James Brown song and then just put that on repeat. And that's how it started. And today, I don't think it's really done like that much anymore. Um, no, because you guys are digital natives. It's done completely with digit digitization today. Go ahead. I want to object to that. Oh, um, OK, all right. Yeah, so I actually DJ. Really? Um, yeah, that's like one of my part-time hobbies. And there are very much so a lot of like vinyl turntablist enthusiasts today um, still doing a lot of that. But it was like back then, it was different because 
hip hop, they were creating this genre. Yes. It didn't exist. They're like, we like what these old folks are doing. We want something. We want to dance. We want to do something upbeat. Disco was played out now. We don't want to do disco anymore. So like like Patrick was saying, they're they're splicing up and they'll have two of the same records, one on each side, and they'll go back and forth and create a new beat. And there were three different sections to hip hop back then. So you have the DJ who's making the beat. You had rappers who were saying something and just like rhyming on top of it. And you had b-boys who were dancing uh, to everything that was happening. So all of that together kind of created hip-hop right. culture. But today, there's still a lot of folks who stick to vinyl, stick to the originals, and will make things happen like this. So it's something called beat juggling that people do now, where they make new beats out of old tracks, or so, not even old tracks. So modern tracks, they'll do the same thing and make new beats out of the new modern tracks that, just from mixing it up. All right, so... In my, in my class at the gym, there's this move that we do, okay? Now, you have to tell me, what, what does this mean? <laughs> what is this? What's this? Why, did the, why headphones? Ah, see? There's something that I remember. <laughs> uh, so you have to have the headphones on because while one record is playing, you're listening to the other record that you're just about to mix. And it was all about the grooves. So... Uh, like, yeah, I know. The first, I know, don't laugh at me. Don't laugh at me. But the, so the early scratching, at least from, you know, what I've learned uh, is that, you know, you, the, the scratching sound on records was done by DJs first unintentionally, that they were trying to find the right groove to get the sampling so that it would continue seamlessly from one song to the other. But then the scratching became one of the samples that they would then loop in to the music. Um, so this is mainly getting its start in places like Brooklyn and the Bronx and New York. Uh, and eventually it does move into the clubs. And it sounds, I'm sure to you, low tech. And when you see these big honking speakers and the, the turntables, you think, oh my God, it's so old. But for them, this was cutting edge and high tech. And DJs would actually battle with each other. Uh, and it wasn't just about their skills. It was about their machines and what they could bring with them to a particular park or dance party. And then a, mu so a genre of music is born. Of course, it's influenced by um, earlier threads like, uh, like James Brown, like you know, rock and roll, R&B, uh, and also the new synthetic music that's coming in. But really, it's, it starts to become its own thing. Uh, and speaking of b-boys, let's, uh, oh, I'll get there in a minute. But I wanted to show you the ways in which some artists, as, the, as we move into the 1980s, 80s and 1990s, uh, they bring this mainstream. So it leaves the Bronx and Brooklyn, and it becomes something that people like me, as a high school student, was listening to all the time. Uh, and the, probably one of the most important was Public Enemy. So they uh, release an album called Fear of a Black Planet, and uh, there are many songs that become number one on the charts. I'm going to just play you a sample with a video of one of them.
So who did you see there on the poster? Malcolm X. Right. Okay. So Fight the Power. Uh, this song is released in 1989. So it's actually made for a movie. Um, the, the band, the group, Public Enemy, formed in 1982. So they had been around for a while. But then a filmmaker is getting a lot of attention, Spike Lee, in the in 1980s, and he he makes uh, a film called Do the Right Thing, and he wanted to have the right sound for the film, so he went to Public Enemy and asked them to develop what ultimately becomes this song. Uh, Do the Right Thing is about uh, the Bedford Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn and racial tensions that are developing there because uh, a lot of the white inhabitants, mainly from ethnic enclaves like Italians and Irish, are leaving the city and moving to the suburbs, and then you have African Americans taking their place. So Spike Lee is actually in the film. He plays a character named Mookie, uh, and he works at an Italian restaurant, Sal's Pizzeria. And basically, Sal's Pizzeria has this kind of wall of fame where they have like photographs of famous Italians. And so a couple people come in, and they're like, Sal, what are you doing? This is a black neighborhood. You need black faces up there. And it just becomes the spark of tensions that had been brewing. Uh, it's a hot night. One night, uh, the fire hydrants open up. People are playing in the streets. And then there's a riot. So this is ultimately what unfolds in the film. But Spike Lee actually handles it quite well. Uh, the, there is like a rapprochement between him or uh, the, the neighbors in this community. And the film itself is dedicated to victims of police violence, which, as you know, uh, doesn't originate with the Black Lives Matter movement. It dates back quite a bit to the, you know, to the civil rights era. So uh, Public Enemy is makes helps to make rap and hip hop a national genre uh, that's enjoyed by you know middle class white people as much as it is by non white people. Um, the uh, so there is another art form that emerges along with hip hop, and that is break dancing. So if you listen to um, Public Enemy or other rappers at the time, there's always a point in the song where the instruments are silent and all you hear is the beat, right? It's, and it's heavy. It, there's a lot of bass. Well, that's called the breakout part of the, of the song. And so dancers started using that time to show, their, to show off. And so it became known as breakdancing. And uh, breakdancing groups would form and compete with each other. Um, and so it, it obviously spun out to something much bigger than the, you know, the breaks in the music uh, and became popular again in the city and then ac across the country. So I'm going to show you a little bit about this form. And then just like start hanging out with them. When you hang out with those people, they might know someone that might be breaking in another area. Like, all right, cool, let's go over there. I want to battle them. It's like it's like the, uh, the martial arts films where um, it's like, huh, yeah, I, heard, I heard your style is good, but mine is better. And you go there and you, te you test their style. And that's, that was my way of recruiting. 
Our crew was called the uh, Rock City Rockets, man. From the uh, 173rd Street area. I mean, we were battling. We, we would do it for fun because there were really no nobody in our area that we, you know what I mean, that, that, that were really involved until we met up with a guy called uh, Crazy Legs. I was like, oh man, yeah, I want to adapt that style. That's why my name is Little Crazy Legs. That's basically how I met everyone else that ended up being in rock steady. You know, I met up with Frosty Freeze. He knew people. So uh, you might have noticed that uh, there there are many different, but mostly men who are who are doing this dancing. Um, it starts out in the African American community, but then eventually it becomes very Latino, uh, and now uh, it, it's very Asian American. Um, so. It, you know, we still see it in American popular culture, but it's changed over time. And you can also see that uh, it comes from kind of a, a gritty part of, uh, of cities. And it's not, let's just say it's not aspirational, right? So people are not breakdancing to, to look like they're rich or to pretend that they're rich. They're, they're actually embracing a different part of American culture. Uh, that is post-industrial. It's inspired by the events that we're talking about uh, as, as a way of kind of generating culture out of the circumstances at the time. Um, another important figure at the time was Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen, um, born and raised in New Jersey, uh, in the he really comes out of the 1960s, in, including... Uh, you know, his musical form, which is very much uh, inspired by uh, roots music, by Woody Guthrie, also by the, the folk music of the 1960s. Uh, and he brings an interesting rock sound with uh, his band, the E Street Band. Uh, but what's interesting about Springsteen is he managed to take the historical developments and, and make it into poetry. His, his music and his lyrics... Um, really kind of transcend the, the, ex the experience and they, he, he somehow finds beauty uh, in the landscape that we've been talking about. So this song that I'm going to play you, it's called Atlantic City. Uh, it's from uh, an, an album called Nebraska. And, uh, well, you're going to see buses. Does anybody remember I told you how my dad paid his way through college? in ways that we can't today. He drove buses. So he drove these buses that you're gonna see. Well, I got a job and tried to put my money away But I got debts that no honest man can pay So I drew what I had from the Central Trust And I bought us two tickets on that I want you to be listening to the lyrics and tell me what, you know, calls your attention. What stands out?
So what do you think? Well, I'll tell you what I saw, uh, among other things, uh, the boardwalk in Atlantic City, which uh, coming out of especially the Prohibition era into the 50s and 60s was thriving. And then, of course, you have casinos. You know, there are casinos in so many places now, but back in the 70s, there were only two places, and that was Atlantic City and Las Vegas. So everybody who lived on the East Coast came to Atlantic City. It was, it was where you came to basically have act out your fantasies of wealth, right? You could go there, you could either pretend that you had a lot of money or try and make a lot of money. You know, people would dress up uh, and put on their makeup and make their hair look pretty and go to Atlantic City. What else? The images that you saw called your attention. Doesn't have to be anything profound. Go ahead. Well, yeah, there was some industrial imagery and um, someone welding something and the lyrics of, like, got a job, and it sort of made you think that that's what the job he was talking about was. But And, and the whole thing about things that die, someday come back, like, sort of optimistic, but clearly, I think, addressing deindustrialization. Uh, de yeah. But you hear, uh, the, I think one of the things that makes him so popular is he's not just complaining about the loss of jobs, you know, he's not all about anger. Uh, there's, always a, there's always an element of um, optimism or beauty in much of his, his music. Uh, I just love the, the lyrics, you know, put your makeup on, make your hair look pretty, right? Even though we may be suffering... We, we may not know where the next paycheck is coming from. Uh, we're still human beings. We need to live. We need to celebrate uh, celebrate life. Um, so there are many genres that come out of this period and respond in many ways to deindustrialization. And they serve different purposes. For some people who are listening to Springsteen, they are very in tune with the lyrics. They feel like oh, this, this speaks to my experience. Um, for other people, it's just music. It, it's an escape. It's a way to, you know, kind of get away from the day-to-day the -day struggles of, of work and family or whatever. Uh, and uh, there's a third genre that I'm going to talk about called New Wave, which is, it becomes popular in the 1980s. It's very much informed, inspired by disco music, by... Uh, the new technology that's developing in places like Silicon Valley. We are really in the infant stages of that. Um, but there are uh, new instruments that emerge, like, like synthesizers. And so one doesn't have to, again, be uh, an, an excellent you know, musician on the guitar or on the piano um, to, to develop something new out of a synthesizer. So um, there's one group at the, that really caught my attention at the time, and they are called Devo. Devo is short for uh, de-evolution. So I can tell you that when I listened to Devo, I had no idea what any of it meant. I didn't care. I liked the music. But for them, for these guys who were born and raised in Akron, Ohio, 
uh, a part of the country that is hollowing out uh, with deindustrialization. They wanted to create music that, in many ways, is a, a, a surrealist parody, a, a humorous response to these events. So you know, it didn't celebrate the changes. It didn't outwardly criticize them. It just kind of made this intentionally weird mix that called your attention to what was happening. So um, they, you would see themes of uh, like work and construction in a lot of their photographs. They had a, one song called uh, like Working in the Coal Mine, um, so, and you would hear industrial sounds. But at the same time, they were also futuristic. And uh, that is one of the unifying themes of new wave music is that it actually incorporated what they saw as futuristic sounds that uh, were like celebrating or evoking the space age. Uh, and they often had narratives that went along with that you wouldn't necessarily hear in the lyrics of the song, but uh, that, that somehow made you think about these things. So uh, Devo, you don't see it here. They actually have a recurring character. His name, I believe, is Boogie Woogie, who is just this guy who wears a mask. And it's meant to just look stupid and weird. Um, and the point being that we are no longer a nation, in, in their mind, that is becoming more civilized and more sophisticated and more prosperous. We are de-evolving. And they mean that not just in terms of the American economy, but American culture, that uh, we're just kind of becoming less and less human uh, as we move into the, the late 20th century. So I'm going to play uh, a piece of a song called It's a Beautiful World. So again, I want you to, to watch it and tell me what, uh, what you notice. That's him. It's a beautiful world we live in. A sweet romantic place. Beautiful people everywhere. The way they show they care makes me want to say it's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world. What did you notice? What was weird? What was, what were they trying to do? Did the, uh, go ahead, Lexi. Pretty bitingly sarcastic. Bitingly sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, how so? I think the lyrics and like the picturization of the song in a way mocks like the ideology of like the rich and the people in society that can afford the good things in life and they've basically turned a blind eye to areas of suffering and violence and they don't want to be a part of it or they don't want to pay attention to it so it kind of mocks that line of people on one side of it and the other side right okay it's a beautiful world if all you heard were the synthesizers and the drums and the the guitar 
it would sound like a really upbeat kind of bubblegum pop song, right? And then you hear the words, like, it's a beautiful world. And you're like, it's, this is all very odd, and it is intentionally odd. And then you see the video, which, as you say, that's the whole point. They're trying to show you uh, how the video, what you see, does not match what they're singing about. The, the voice, the, the words in a beautiful world are meant to be superficial, right? They're meant to call your attention to what's happening on the surface and what American culture celebrates in terms of wealth and technology, uh, and then, but actually what the other consequences are of, of that celebration. Um, and that's, that's who they were. They were irony. They were, that's what they were about. And there were, there were other groups um, but I would, that were, did similar things, but I think more, they more than anyone else had that very sarcastic approach to the music. But I wish I could tell you that I was on top of all that and interested in the 1980s, but I wasn't. I just liked their music. I like to listen to Devo. Um, so Devo is actually a really good way to um, bring today's lecture to a close because uh, it's looking to events that we're going to talk about soon, um, events in that uh, change the American economy mainly from places like Silicon Valley, the development of tech that has its origins in the industrial, like the period of deindustrialization, but really takes off in the 1990s. So, for example, uh, does anyone know the origins of Apple? Right? This is one of those great success stories that we celebrate in a garage. When? Where? In a garage. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, I thought you had your hand up. Oh, yes. California. Uh, Steve Jobs made the, um, he always started Apple in his garage. And yeah, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, drop out of college, uh, and they are kind of tinkering themselves in this time period that we're talking about, but really they don't become Apple uh, until a little bit later, and that's when the economy changes. But it's in the 70s that they're starting to play around. Uh, this is also when the government is developing the Internet, uh, it starts out being called, I think, a rap net or something like it. Um, and it operated on these big, huge computers. But we didn't really get the Internet until the 1990s. Uh, I'm really dating myself here, but when I was sitting in your seat and listening to lectures, I did not have email. There was no World Wide Web. Uh, I didn't even have a cell phone. All of that is in its infancy, and people aren't even necessarily talking about in the era of, of, of deindustrialization, but it is really on the horizon. So uh, you can think about the relationships between these things and what's ahead um, as you prepare for class on Tuesday. Uh, remember to do the readings in daily, and uh, thank you so much for your attention today. Have a good rest of your day. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. 
That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.